Hello, welcome to the Sermons Podcast of Horizon Church in Allentown, Pennsylvania. We want to help people connect with God and connect with each other. If you'd like to know more about us, you can go to our website at horizonconnect.org. Enjoy. Alrighty, so Donna is watching at home. Uh, I'll talk about that in a second. And Donna, I'm pretty sure that that elf mug is what we gave to him last Christmas, isn't it? So, anyway, hey, um, since uh, I just want to repeat something I said earlier, uh, I, I do want to thank everybody who was part of the service last week when we were in Wyoming, uh, Keisha, uh, who did the message, uh, Jill, who did our kids' message, Stefan, um, Stephen Hinkle, who stepped up for Andy, uh, and everybody else. I, I, I've already said this, and this is true, Keisha and everybody else. I got more emails, positive emails, about last week's service than I have about any service, uh, as far as I remember, that, that, that I've ever done here. So immediately following this service... Um, <laughs> I am retiring to Wyoming, and no, I just want to say thank you. And in light of that also, uh, in light of the fact that obviously everybody knows that I was traveling, I want to put a bunch of you at ease. When I got home Wednesday morning, one of the first things I did is went and got a COVID test. Uh, got the results back today. My COVID test is negative. Um, so just want to put, put you at ease with that. Donna got a test as well. She didn't get her results yet, so Donna's staying at home. Um, so let's pray, and then we'll, then we'll move on. God, thank you for your presence. Thank you, God, for the fact that, reg- that regardless of what's going on in our own lives right now, that you are still God. You haven't changed. You haven't changed how you operate in the world. You haven't changed who you are. Um, you haven't changed what you are planning to do in our world. The difficulty, God, that we have, obviously, is we don't understand all that that involves. And so at times like this, we find ourselves anxious. We find ourselves wondering what to do. We find ourselves depressed and despairing. And God, while all that is understandable, I pray, God, that Every single day, we'd be learning more and more to be people who trust you regardless of of what is going on. God, I want to pray especially for people right now who we know people who are sick. Um, We know people who are caring for uh, patients in homes, older people who are in homes, and we know the burden that they have to keep those people safe. We know people, God, who have family members in homes and who are increasingly isolated and lonely. So, God, I pray for all that's going on. I pray for individuals who are suffering and struggling. I pray, God, that you'd be present. I pray, God, that as your church, that you'd help us to remember that your commission for the church hasn't changed one single bit. You have no expectation that your church will be a church of fearful people. 
you have no expectation that your church would retreat. You have no expectation that your church would stop being the church. So God, I pray for us that you'll help us to engage in our world, even when we have to do it differently. Pray, God, that you'll help us to continue being your people and your church. I pray also, God, that right now as we pay attention to your word, as we start preparing for Christmas, I pray, God, that you'll help us to be attentive and to be faithful. And God, for, for a teacher, my burden is for truth and for accuracy. So I pray, God, that everything that we talk about, that uh, if in any way, God, I have gotten off track, I thank you, God, for the confidence I have that your spirit will guard us from being influenced incorrectly. And God, I am also so grateful, so eternally grateful that you're in the process of transforming us and changing us into the people you want us to be. Pray, God, that as we interact with your word this morning, that you be doing that again. And I thank you, God, for the promise that you will. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So how many of you have said the sentence in the last, say, uh, six months or so? How many of you have said the sentence, I can't wait for this to be over? And the this, by the way, the this might be um, the election mess, or maybe it is just the racial stuff that's going on, or maybe it's COVID, uh, or maybe it's just all of it, all bundled up in this crazy year 2020. I can't wait for this to be over. That's a very interesting phrase when you think about it a little bit, that phrase, I can't wait. I can't wait. And it's interesting because waiting is about the only thing we can do, isn't it? We really don't have a choice in the matter. Think about all the times in life that we use that very simple phrase. I heard it in Wyoming with a five-year-old. I can't wait to get big and go to school. I can't wait to get out of school. I can't wait to get my driver's license. I can't wait until I'm old enough to get a job. I can't wait until I'm old enough to retire. I can't wait to get married. I can't wait for this baby to get out of here. I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait for this to be over. Now we say that obviously not because waiting is impossible for us and we're not capable of doing it, because waiting is the only thing we can do. We say that phrase because waiting is so blasted hard. We just don't want to wait. And yet Advent, the season that we began actually last week, Advent is a season of waiting. In fact, Advent is actually kind of a celebration of waiting. 
Advent is like a four-week-long waiting party, which for some of us is an extraordinarily painful thought, isn't it? Because who in their right minds wants to celebrate waiting? Well, God does. God does. You could actually say that that word waiting is a definition of our word faith. Faith is waiting. And if it isn't actually a definition, it is at least true that our faith requires us to wait and to wait well. So I think what we're going to do, I don't think, I actually know, what we're going to do is we're going to use the next couple weeks of Advent for some lessons on waiting. Waiting will be our theme, especially since most of us right now can't wait. So here's an Advent waiting story from Luke chapter 2. I'm going to start reading at verse 21. Now, kind of historically, this is actually a post-Christmas story, but it functions as an Advent waiting story. Luke chapter 2, the baby's born. And eight days later, when the baby was circumcised, he was named Jesus, the name given him by the angel even before he was conceived. Then it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So his parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. The law of the Lord says, if a woman's first child is a boy, he must be dedicated to the Lord. So they offered the sacrifice required in the law of the Lord, either a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now at that time, there was in Jerusalem a man named Simeon. He was righteous and devout and was eagerly waiting for the Messiah to come and rescue Israel. The Holy Spirit was upon him and had revealed to him that he would not die until he had seen the Lord's Messiah. That day, the Spirit led him to the temple. So, when Mary and Joseph came to present the baby Jesus to the Lord as the law required, Simeon was there. He took the child in his arms And praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, you can now let your servant die in peace, as you have promised. I have seen your salvation, which you have prepared for all people. He is a light to reveal God to the nations, and he is the glory of your people Israel. Now, Jesus' parents were amazed at what was being said about the baby. Then Simeon blessed them, and he said to Mary, the baby's mother, This child is destined to cause many in Israel to fall, but he will be a joy to many others. He has been sent as a sign from God, but many will oppose him. As a result, the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. 
and a sword will pierce your very soul. Anna, a prophet, was also there in the temple. She was the daughter of Phanuel from the tribe of Asher, and she was very old. Her husband died when they'd been married only seven years. Then she lived as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, but stayed there day and night, worshiping God with fasting and prayer. She came along just as Simeon was talking with Mary and Joseph, and she began praising God. She talked about the child to everyone who had been waiting expectantly for God to rescue Jerusalem. Now, I think it doesn't require a whole lot of thought. I think all of us will agree, if you think about it for any length of time, that there are actually different kinds of waiting that we do. There is the kind of waiting that we do when you put a potato in the microwave or the waiting for the first person in the left-hand turn lane to actually start moving. And that kind of waiting can make three seconds seem like three days. There's the kind of waiting we do when we wait for the doctor to call and give us the test results. That can make three days seem like three years. But if the doctor says you have three years, it can make three years seem like three days. There is, however, another kind of waiting, and it is the kind of waiting that is really not about time at all, as in how much time do I have to wait? Three seconds, three days, three years. There's a kind of waiting that isn't about time. It's about hope. There's a kind of waiting that is about hope. So let me try to explain this, and this is important, so try to follow along if you can with this. Very often when a person who is writing a book in the Bible, like Luke, who wrote what I wrote for you, read for you here, uh, when a person like Luke writes a book of the Bible, sometimes that particular author will take a single person and tell you a story about that person, but the story really isn't only about that person. That person in the story functions as kind of a stand-in or a substitute for all of us, for everyone. So, for example, uh, having just emerged from Thanksgiving, you might know that there's another story, a great Thanksgiving story that the same author, Luke, tells in chapter 17 of his gospel. And in Luke chapter 17, he tells a story about 10 men who had leprosy, and they were healed of leprosy from Jesus. Now, that's an, it's that story in Luke 17, it's a very unusual healing story because Jesus never actually told the lepers he's going to heal them. He said, go to the priests, which was one of the necessary steps to be declared healed from that leprosy. So he says, go to the priests. And Scripture tells us, Luke says, that while they were on the way, they were healed. And of the ten who were healed, 
Luke says that only one was overwhelmed with gratitude and returned to Jesus to give thanks to Jesus. And Jesus then says, where are the other nine? Now, I think everybody who reads that story understands that there is an implied kind of where am I in that story? And where are you? The ten become substitutes for us, stand-ins for us. And we're meant to ask, where am I? Which of the ten am I? So sometimes when we read these stories, we're to understand that the person that we're reading about, not only is it about him or her, but it's also about us. Now, the first story that I read, and there were two, a story about Simeon and a story about Anna. The first story about Simeon really seems to be about a story about Simeon. And there's no doubt that it is. It's a story about him. Somehow, God's Spirit had communicated with Simeon that he would physically see the Messiah. He'd see the birth of the Messiah. The Messiah is the person who is intended to be the king in God's kingdom. He's the kingdom bringer. That is not something that is ever going to happen to any of us. We're never going to see the birth of the Messiah. That's about Simeon. It's not about us. And then Simeon makes some just incredibly astonishing statements as he holds this little baby in his arms. He says, this little baby is going to be the Messiah for all people, all nations. He will reveal God to the nations. He will be the crowning achievement of Israel, the greatest glory ever to come out of Israel. And then he turns to Mary and Joseph, and he's not done with statements about this baby. He says, this baby is going to actually divide Israel. Some will rise and some will fall because of him. He will face this baby all kinds of opposition. He will reveal to human beings what is in their hearts. And you, Mary, will experience great piercing pain because of him. That's just an extraordinary moment. It's not our moment. It's Simeon's moment, not ours. You and I do not have to go looking for babies in temples. But in verse 25, there's a really important statement made about Simeon. It says he was eagerly awaiting the Messiah. Eagerly awaiting. Now, hold that thought. In the second story, the story about Anna, Anna, uh, Luke tells us, is an old, old woman. In the story, we get a couple details about her Jewish lineage. We get some stories about her age, and it's somewhat hard to understand, so your Bible may say something different. But this woman appears to be in her 80s, which makes her a really, really, really old woman. And we got some sense... uh, my apology. Well, not really. I wouldn't have said it if I was sorry. But we got some sense of her devotion in the story when it says that 
at the temple, she was there all the time praying and fasting. And just like Simeon, she's overwhelmed by this baby. But interestingly, Anna never is quoted. We're never told anything that Anna says. We're just told this in verse 38. She talks to everyone. This is important. Everyone who was waiting expectantly. Now, here's the deal. In most of our Bibles, the English translations we're looking at, they use slightly different words to talk about the waiting of Simeon and the waiting of everyone. In my Bible, it said that Simeon was eagerly waiting for and everyone was waiting expectantly. Slightly different phrases. But Luke, who wrote this, Luke used actually the exact same word for both. And there it is on the screens, prostekomai. Now, quick question. Is there anybody here that can speak Greek? Okay, good. Then that's exactly how you say that word. All right. Um, that word is pronounced prostekomai, I think. If you go home and if you Google that word, and you can do that, or if you're at home right now and you decide to Google it, because you know I can't see you playing with your phone. If you Google this word and you can, you'll discover that this word means to wait, to look for, to expect, to hope. To hope. Now, two things, two things you should not miss. One, did you catch that Anna was talking to everyone who was doing this? Everyone. This is where Anna and Simeon function as stand-ins for us. God's dream for you, God's dream for me, God's dream for everyone is that we would all have this gift, this expectant, eager, waiting, hope, hope. God wants it for everyone. And the reason he wants it for everyone is because of the kind of waiting that this is, which leads to point two. Do you understand that this kind of waiting is very, very different than the kind of waiting we are doing when we are enduring the slow passing of time in the doctor's waiting room? reading the 1986 issue of National Geographic. This kind of waiting is expecting. And expecting is hope. Expecting is hope. Now, let me make a very quick apology. 
for the illustration that I'm about to use. I know that there are many, many women here at home who at one time in their lives probably longed to have a family and longed to have a baby, but for many reasons that never happened. It's a painful longing for many women, and for many it's a secret longing. So I know that whenever I talk about this, it hurts, and I'm sorry. I hope you'll be able to forgive and benefit from what I'm about to say anyway. Do you remember when we used to talk about pregnancy by using the word expecting? As in, I'm expecting. Or, did you hear Mary is expecting? I don't think we use that word as much anymore, do we? We don't say it that way. But isn't that word great? Expecting. And isn't that a great word to describe that whole experience? We are expecting. It's a great word because in that single word, it paints a picture of everything we are doing is looking forward. Everything we are doing now is moving us forward. Everything we are doing now is done in anticipation. Everything we are doing now is about hope. Because expecting is hope. There's a great book that has been around for a long, long time. In fact, I'm sure that some of you, just because of the words I'm using, have this book on your shelves and you already know what book I'm talking about. It's the book entitled, What to Expect When You're Expecting. We had the book, we read it. Apparently, this book is the number one best-selling pregnancy book of all time. Dozens and dozens of printings. Been on the bestseller list for decades. So here's the thing about this book. To be expecting is all about preparing for the outcome. It's to be prepared for where you're headed. So according to the book, what do you expect when you're expecting? Well, what you expect is that your body starts expecting. Your body does. And so does your life. Because you're expecting, your body starts to rearrange itself around the care and arrival of a baby. And you start rearranging your life around the same thing. You paint the baby's room. You cut out caffeine. You buy a crib. You start saying names out loud. You do the baby registry thing so that everybody knows which particular pack and play you want and which particular stroller you want. You buy at least a dozen large plastic bins to store all of the things the grandparents start buying. The baseball gloves, the erector sets, 
the tiny little Eagles jerseys, which now you look at and you think, well, at least I can use it as a spit-up rag someday. <laughs> you buy a little Christmas ornament that says, Welcome Baby 2021. To be expecting is entirely outcome-based living. And that's hope. That's hope. Expecting is hope. And that is the kind of waiting that this is. Waiting is hope. It is trust-based living. It's living based not on this present moment and how things are right now, but it is living based on where we are headed. It's faith. What do we do while we wait? We hope. We live every moment, every day in trust in faith, not fear, in faith. Having just spent some time flying, I got to tell you that my last experience flying over Thanksgiving was absolutely delightful, entirely based on the absence of people. If you fly at all normally, you know how they tell you when you're flying that you're allowed a small personal item and a carry-on bag? Usually right at the counter where you board, there's a little display with two slots, kind of like a giant toaster. And the display says your bags have to fit in here. But you also know, if you fly at all, that about one-third of the bags people are carrying would never, ever fit right in here. <laughs> kind of like trying to, buy, trying to jam a giant Wawa muffin into your toaster at home. People carry guitars, shopping bags full of Christmas presents, backpacks that look like they're meant for six months on the Appalachian Trail. And those of us, like me, who are rule keepers, we stand there and we watch this. And we shake our heads in disgust, making sure that everyone sees us shaking our heads. And we will say out loud to our somewhat embarrassed spouse, why doesn't anyone enforce the baggage limits, right? Anyone else like that? Thank you, yeah. Because you know what's going to happen, right? You know what's going to happen. In a few moments, these same people are going to try to stuff their oversized bags, clogging the aisles. People are going to walk up and down looking for space in the overhead bins. Flight attendants are going to be, you know, slamming those doors, trying to get them to close. And do you know why all of this is? Baggage claim. Baggage claim. We will do anything we can to avoid baggage claim. Why? The weight. 
the weight. We want to avoid the weight at the end of a trip. That's a very interesting thing. The people who run the Houston airport used to get a ton of complaints about how long the wait was at their particular baggage claim. Apparently, the Houston airport was among the worst in the industry for large airports. So the executives, realizing that they were in trouble, they decided we got to solve this wait. So they hired more baggage handlers they were actually able to get the wait down to just under eight minutes, which is better than the industry average. But people were still complaining more than normal at the Houston airport. And then some genius said, you know, when we designed this airport, we designed it to be convenient. So we made it that it takes just under a minute to, to walk from the plane to baggage claim. And in making it convenient, we created for ourselves the perfect hurry up and wait situation. So you know what they did? They redesigned the airport. They moved the arrival gates much, much farther away. You've been to the Houston airport, obviously. They have moved the, the arrival gates much, much further away from baggage claim. The walk now is a whole lot longer, but no one ever complains about the walk. And when the people get to baggage claim, their bags are already arriving. It's a miracle. <laughs> and no one complains anymore. The interesting thing about all this is that the geniuses who came up with this, and they really are rather clever, they know that the total time hasn't changed at all. It's how you spend it. Do you get the lesson in waiting? There's a guy named Richard Larson. He's an MIT researcher on waiting in lines. In the same article I read about the Houston airport, he's quoted, and he actually says that the length of our wait is not nearly as important as what we do while we wait. He said this, often the psychology of queuing, obviously he's British, the psychology of queuing is more important than the statistics of the weight itself. We tolerate occupied time better than unoccupied time. Do you get the lesson in waiting? Give us something to do. While we wait, give us something to do. And then waiting becomes hope. That's why Luke wrote about this remarkable moment. Two old people who have spent their entire lives waiting expectantly, they hold a baby. A baby. 
And that's enough. Simeon says, now I can die in peace. And an old, old woman runs around the temple courtyard telling everybody who will listen, telling everyone who can wait expectantly here at last, at long last, here he is. But don't miss this. Who is here? A six-week-old baby. And a baby isn't going to save anybody. A six-week-old baby needs somebody to change his underwear for Pete's sakes. He's not saving anybody. But this baby. This baby says, God is on the move. God is doing something. And if that's the case, then there is something to do, isn't there? And waiting becomes expecting, and expecting is hope. So question, those of us who can't wait, do you believe God is working right now? Or do you think that God is waiting for all of this, all of this to be over so he can get back to work? Or do you think that God is working right now? And what are you waiting for? Let's pray. God, I pray that you'd be at work in us, those of us who are struggling so much. God, I pray that you'll help us to understand that you have not stopped working. And although things have changed radically and it's so different. We have so much to do right now. I pray, God, that you'll help us to be your people, to be people who understand that we wait expectantly. We hope we are people of faith right now. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about Horizon Church, please go to the website at horizonconnect.org. Have a great week.